0: Thank you again for being with us today on Mother's Day. We are continuing our study of the Old Testament book of Job. The name of Job and the book of Job is almost synonymous with suffering. But the book of Job is also a book of great hope. And today I'd like to focus on the hope that's found in the book of Job. But first, a quick review of the key figures we've seen in the first couple chapters of the book of Job. The first obviously was Job himself. We read in the first verse of the book of Job that there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now to say that Job was blameless does not mean that he was sinless. No human being who's ever walked this earth was sinless with the exception of Jesus Christ the Son of God, God the Son, who knew no sin. But it means that Job was a man of integrity, and in his day, he was seen as honoring to God. He feared God. He turned away from evil. Secondly, of course, God is a key figure. We read in verse six of chapter one, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The sons of God is a reference to angels. Angels are subordinate to God. Satan was created as an angelic being. And I stress this first just to show that God himself has no equal opposite. No angel, not Satan himself, is equal in any way to God. Satan then is another figure in these first two chapters. The word Satan means the adversary or the accuser. Uh, Satan tried to get Job to curse God after gaining permission from God to afflict Job. And afflict Job, he did. He afflicted him horribly, we read. And by the end of the second chapter of Job, Job is suffering terribly. But at that point, we're introduced to some more key figures. And those are Job's three friends. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. They made an appointment to come together to show him sympathy and comfort him. That was why these friends came. Good friends indeed, coming to comfort Job in his affliction, to be with him, to sit with him. And the Bible says that for seven days, they just gave him the ministry of presence. They were with him, they didn't speak, they sat with him in his suffering But then Job broke the ice, and Job opened his mouth and began to speak, and we read this in Job chapter 3. Job began by cursing the day of his birth. He wouldn't curse God, but he cursed his life circumstances in the day of his birth. And once Job began to speak in chapter 3, the floodgates were opened, and his three friends began to speak. And so the greater part of the book of Job, from Job chapter 3, to Job chapter 31 consists of a series of speeches by Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, interspersed with speeches from Job. And that's the bulk of this great book of Job. And then near the end of the book, another man comes named Elihu, and then the final chapters of Job, the Lord Himself is speaking. But this morning, I'd like to look again at this largest section of Scripture and look at what we see in Job's own responses and speeches interspersed with those, of course, of his friends. What do we see in Job? First of all, we see Job's longing. His longing is to find God and communicate with God. As he's in his suffering, we read these words in Job chapter 23. Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. You hear what he's saying? He's complaining. He's lamenting. And as I mentioned last week, it's not necessarily a sin to complain or to lament to God. The Bible consists of quite a lot of lamenting, particularly in the book of Psalms. And Job, as he's, as he's lamenting his circumstances, is also longing to find and communicate with God, All oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. As we continue reading in chapter 23, you won't see the words on the screen, but Job gives some beautiful words about his quest to find God. He says, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. In other words, I can't find God. I can't see God. I want to make my case before him. Job continues, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. And then Job speaks these words of confidence in verse 14 of chapter 23 regarding God. For he will complete what he appoints for me. He will complete what he appoints for me. Think about those words for a moment. There's a very similar verse in the book of Psalms, and it's one of my favorites in the book of Psalms. It's one of my memory verses, and one I like to pray for myself and for others. It's Psalm 138 in verse 8, and it says this, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. And that is the confidence that Job, in his longing, in his quest to find God and not being able to find God, he expresses this confidence when he says, for he will complete what he appoints for me. Furthermore, in Job's speeches, we see his confidence in who God is, the very greatness of God. And in a particularly beautiful chapter, chapter 26 of Job, we read these words. Sheol is naked before God, and Sheol is considered to be uh, the grave, the place of the dead. In other words, God can see everything. He can see beyond what we can see. He can see the grave. He can see uh, Hades itself. Sheol is naked before God, and Abaddon has no covering. He stretches out the north over the void, and listen to these words, and hangs the earth on nothing. Now, the book of Job was written thousands of years ago. Job probably never traveled very far from the place where he was born and where he died. In all likelihood, he only knew the earth as a very flat surface, He probably never traveled farther than he could travel on the back of a camel. How could Job say that he hangs the earth on nothing? Could he have possibly known that the earth was orbiting in space? Could he have possibly known more than the flat world that he saw? only i think by the inspiration of the holy spirit does he speak these words of our almighty god that he stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing he binds up the waters in his thick clouds binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split open under them he covers the face of the full moon and spreads it over his cloud he has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters At the boundary between light and darkness, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. Rahab, the Hebrew term implies pride or insolence, and commentators suggest this was the the name given to a, a great sea monster of some type in the time of Job. By his wind the heavens were made fair, and his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways, and how small a whisper do we hear of him, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? In the midst of all of his pain and confusion, Job is giving us this beautiful, beautiful scripture on the majesty and on the power of God. He's speaking of God here as the creator of all things, as the sustainer of all things, the one who hangs the earth in its orbit on nothing, and as the ruler over all of his creation. In these beautiful speeches of Job, furthermore, we see hope. We see Job's great hope, and he says it so beautifully in Job chapter 19, when he points to the existence of a living redeemer. Job says, my bones stick to my my skin and my flesh. He's talking of his suffering here. And I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. By the way, you've heard that phrase before, right? So-and-so escaped by the skin of his or her teeth. This is just one of a number of statements in the Bible. Uh, Many centuries, thousands of years old, that have uh, uh, continued into our time today to make popular sayings. For example, you've heard of the patience of Job. Well, Job says here, I've escaped by the skin of my teeth. That's where that phrase comes from. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends. For the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Could Job have possibly known that his words would be written and that they would indeed be inscribed in the book that we call the Bible? We continue to read. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, my heart faints within me. Job knows that his Redeemer is God. When he says, in my flesh, I will see God, he's connecting that statement to the knowledge of a living Redeemer. He knows that God is not only his creator, but God is also his Redeemer. The word redeem is used in Scripture, conveys the idea of of buying, buying someone out, for example, buying someone out of slavery. With the benefit of the New Testament, we know that Jesus is that Redeemer, the one who lives. The Bible says, in him we have redemption by his blood. The blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus shed for us was the price paid to redeem us from our sins that we might be able to stand before God forgiven, declared righteous because of the blood of Christ shed for us. Job here is expressing his confidence in a living redeemer who will one day rule and enable him to see and stand before this God whom he has been longing to see in his quest to communicate with God. So we see Job's longing. We see his confidence in who God is, his creator, sustainer, ruler of all. And we see his hope in God as his redeemer, whom he will one day see. But before we leave this section of the book of Job, I want to to raise a question that I think may have come to some of our minds when we've been reading uh, the book of Job. What was God's purpose in all this? What was God's purpose in Job's suffering? If you only read chapters one and two of Job, you might wonder was God just trying to prove himself to Satan? Because Satan said, you know, uh, afflict God, he'll uh, afflict this guy and he'll curse you to your face. And was God just trying to win an argument with Satan and using Job in the process? I don't think so. I, th- I think there was much more going on here than that. What was God's purpose in Job's suffering? Number one, to give Job a greater vision of himself. I mentioned that at the end of the book of Job, the last few chapters, we have God speaking, God's speeches. And then we get to the very last chapter of the book of Job, and Job speaks. And he begins chapter 42, the last chapter of Job, with these words. The Lord ans- the- then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. He continues in verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. We don't know how long Job suffered. Uh, Commentators suggest it may have been a year. Some think less than a year. The longest I read in a biblical commentator was possibly two years. He didn't suffer like this his whole life. In fact, Job lived a very, very, very long life But in the end, Job certainly had a greater vision of who God was. And the lesson for us, I think, is this. When we walk with God through suffering, when we go through things we do not understand, we don't turn away from God, but we turn to him, we can come to a greater knowledge of who God is, greater vision of God, greater understanding of God. It's not an easy lesson by any means, but I think it's one that's clear from the book of Job, to give Job and to give us a greater vision of himself. Secondly, what was God's purpose in Job's suffering? To reward Job's steadfastness. There's a verse in the New Testament book of James that is a beautiful commentary on Job's experience. We might wonder, how is Job remembered? Later in the Bible, how is he remembered in the New Testament? Is he remembered as Job the complainer? <laughs> he's remembered this way he's remembered for his steadfastness. James is encouraging Christians in this passage um, who were suffering. He says, Brothers, the example of, of uh, suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider blessed those who've remained steadfast or those who have endured or those who have persevered. The words could be interchanged. Uh, They're meaning essentially the same thing. This word steadfast translates a Greek word that means abiding under. Different versions, if you read the NIV or the New American Standard or King James, you'll find it rendered as uh, those who have endured, those who have persevered. You've heard of the endurance, the perseverance, the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, frankly, as I read the book of Job, I don't think it sounds like Job was all that steadfast or persevering with his lamenting and his complaining. But indeed, that's how he's remembered for us in the New Testament. And then finally, to reward Job's steadfastness and furthermore to show Job Job God's compassion and mercy. As James goes on to write, you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And At the very end of the book of Job, we have these words, and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. Credible account for us in the book of Job. So I'd like to raise this one question before we leave the book of Job this morning, and that is this, what can we learn? What do you and I learn from the book of Job primarily? Well, number one, that we, we all need a Redeemer. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he was speaking prophetically about the coming Redeemer that you and I have in Christ he had already spoken earlier of his longing for an arbiter, that is, a mediator, a somebody who could stand between him and God. And as we saw last week, that mediator for us was in his Jesus. Paul writes, there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus took human flesh upon himself so that by his death, In the shedding of his sinless blood, he might redeem us to God. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. What we call the gospel, or the good news, that's what the word gospel means, is that we do not gain our acceptance with God by our good deeds, our good efforts, or our good intentions. We can't. If we could have done that, Jesus would not have died on the cross for us. It would not have been necessary. But as the Apostle Paul says, there is no one righteous, no not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if you're thinking about your eternal destiny and you're counting on being good enough and doing enough, being sincere enough, giving enough money, going to church enough, going through sacraments regularly enough. None of those things will suffice. Only the redemption that is provided through the blood of Jesus Christ and upon whom we are told to call as our Savior and Lord, in Him, in Christ, in Him alone, That's why Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We must not rely on anything. We must not rely upon ourselves. We must not rely on church attendance. We must rely on Jesus alone for our salvation. We all need a Redeemer. Another lesson from the book of Job is this. Endurance, perseverance, steadfastness, as it was rendered in James chapter 5 and verse 11, is a necessary quality in order for us to be spiritually mature. We'd all like to go through life, I'm sure, with no suffering, with no adversity, with no challenges of any type. But it is through those difficulties that we develop this quality known as endurance, steadfastness, or perseverance. The Apostle Paul writes these words, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that is, we've been deemed righteous by God through our faith in Jesus, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him. We've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That is, we are looking to the glory of God in our eternal destiny. But not only that, he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. Wow. That's a hard thought, but it is biblical. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces something. It produces this quality, this endurance, or steadfastness, or perseverance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. In other words, suffering endurance and endurance, that go together. They go together in a life of growing spiritual maturity. Necessary if we are to be spiritually mature. Let's pray about these things this morning. Would you join me? Father, It's challenging when we talk about hope in the midst of suffering because none of us wants to suffer, yet all of us in some way in life know that we do. And Lord, we ask that you would help us in the adversities that we face, in the difficulties that we face, to turn to you and to draw our strength from you. Lord, I want to pray for our friends among us this morning who are suffering in very difficult, hard ways, physically, physically, or or with something that a family member's going through. Lord, I pray for them. I pray for abundant grace from the Holy Spirit. I pray for your help. I pray for your encouragement. I pray for your love. Lord, I know some are grieving this morning. Father, pour your healing upon them. Lord, you are a a, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You know us better than we know ourselves. Would you bring your healing shalom? your comforting balm to the souls of those who are grieving. Would you show yourself to be the great helper today? Lord, as we're praying, we want to pray for members of our church like Bella Tisdale in northern India. We pray for Sonny and Stewart and Brett and Stan and Rusty and BJ who are in Kenya. Rusty, BJ in Uganda. Watch over them. Bless them, keep them, cause your face to shine upon them. Be magnified in our lives, we pray, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.